Hi there. Welcome to Mental Health Professionals Network podcast series. MHPN's aim is to promote and celebrate interdisciplinary, collaborative mental health care. Welcome to Transitions, which is our wonderful podcast series with the Mental Health Professional Network. Uh, My name is Julianne White. I'm a mental health social worker working in rural New South Wales. And with me today is my colleague and friend, Matthew Povey. Yeah, so I'm a trauma psychotherapist and also finishing uh, my social work degree. And I work in uh, rural and regional New South Wales in the Snowy Valley District over the last 12 months doing a lot of the trauma recovery fire-affected regions um, that Australia has been having. Yeah, and that's it's a really significant region, Matt, isn't it? It's um, mm. sort of stuck between Victoria and New South Wales in over on the eastern side of Australia. Significant bushfires through 2019-2020 summer season, yep. um, but which came on the back of a significant 10-year drought, one of the worst droughts that have hit the region mm. and Australia for some time. Yep. And these bushfires hit international significance. It was just significant. Most of the eastern seaboard was on fire. Mm. But what was significant about the snowy region is that it's just, it was intense, absolutely intense fires and a massive fire front that went right across kilometres and kilometres and hundreds and thousands of hectares with lots of property loss and um, stock. But listen, I'm really curious though, as a social worker, and look, we have, this is where I really love the Mental Health Professional Network. It is an opportunity for us as professionals and clinicians and colleagues to collaborate, to share ideas and look at current research and, you know, what's out there. So Mm. I think this is a beautiful opportunity to have a chat with you, Matt, as a colleague and as a current social worker, which is really great. But we've often talked about the fact that we've got different, slightly different perspectives. Me with my mental health, my grief and loss hat, and you've got your, like, a social work but trauma psychotherapy hat. How do you feel that all fits? Do you, you know, tell me about your, your practice. So I think for me in my mind, it actually comes together really quite naturally well. So the, my main practice model is what we call mentalization based therapy. And that is based on brain science and the capacity for a person to be able to make sense of two things in their mind of themselves and also imagined other states and other people. Yeah, but how does that work with trauma, Matt? Like, we've talked a lot about this mentalisation approach. Mm. I'm just curious then, um, and it's really looking at transitions in people's lives, isn't it? The trauma is a form of transition. Would that be right? I think it's a huge transition because when someone goes through something that's traumatic, it actually has an effect on their whole life. So from a mentalising perspective, what we actually try to do with the person is actually take a step back Mm -hmm. and looking at the effects the trauma has had on them from multiple dimensions, both in their relationships, maybe affecting their work life, um, academic performance at school if they're younger ones. And then what we try and then do is actually begin to work to bring them back online and to then mitigate and reduce the effects trauma has on them when they've actually been through something usually quite horrible. Yeah, and look, and this, what we've experienced uh, the last, you know, 18 months or so with first the drought in this region and then we had those most horrific bushfires Mm. right through the snowy region and one of our communities, Batlow, was just been so, so heavily affected and then we had COVID and COVID has been, it's almost like a stacks on of trauma, hasn't it? Sort of, you know, we've got an underlying... Um, you know, communities that are struggling or suffering. Do you want to comment on that stacks up or cumulative trauma 
How do you see that with that? Do you use that mentalising lens for that as well? Yeah, we do. And I think just thinking about it now, it kind of very much ties in. When I've been working in the communities, the way that we've been describing is it's almost like COVID's become a bit of a blanket. So the bushfire um, the effects of the bushfire trauma are actually still there, mm-hmm. but because of the massive intensity COVID had, which was you know reducing uh, people's ability to connect, which is a healing oh, part yeah. of trauma. Yep. Um, and then also you know the anxiety that's just been in the air, you know, not knowing what's going to come next. And if you've got someone who then has been through bushfires, flood, drought. And even then people who have actually had previous history of trauma, maybe from their childhood, it actually does create this compounding and stacking where all this stuff actually then starts to come to the surface. Sort of bubbles up a little bit in mm. um, in my mind sometimes. I, I'm a very visual person and we've often talked about the images. So in my mind, I'm seeing little breakouts of bubbles yeah. erupting and little eruptions and major eruptions. Huge ones. So do you find then, like I find in my clinical experience that people might have a grief over something and there's a significant grief depending on the meaning. The person gives a certain loss, like lost job or lost opportunity, people that have left the area and then you might have something else more significant like, you know, businesses closing down and townships struggling to even, you know, know if they're going to function or have a township, you know, in 12 months' time, especially with COVID as a compounding influence. Post. Like I'm, I'm really thinking about one of those communities that's quite small and it's yeah. just so sad to see this compounding um, grief and trauma that people are having. Mm. It's No, it is very huge and it comes from all the aspects because then people, when they've been through that trauma, really struggle to transition into other areas of their life. But they were also affected by the trauma. So a lot of these communities, you know, have lost... Um, a lot of work. They've lost, you know, education's been affected by COVID last year with the lockdowns we've had. So people are then, you know, struggling because mm. they're behind and people are trying to catch up. And the bigger thing that's been a constant comment is no one's really had a break. Like it's kind of just been this domino effect and mm. no one's really had space to breathe. Mm. So it really is this compounding effect, but then the impact of, you know, job, education and even family relationships can be quite impacted with that so and financial pressures so i think from that social work lens we really Mm. need to actually collectively look at not just the person but actually what is going on in their environment and then kind of even take what i call a drone position which is very mentalizing. Say that again, what's that? A, a, drone, a drone position, position. like a sort of a sitting above people and yeah. looking on. That's a really nice image, isn't it? Yeah. Like so, a helicopter view sort of thing. Mm. Mm. So as a from the social work lens, I try and take that mm. drone position, not just to look at the individual, but then take a couple of steps up and go, how's the community? How are the organisations such as the schools and um, local networks and things like that that have then been affected because then we've also then got a sort of role to come in and then assist other professionals there that may have been impacted and that could be local business owners, Mm. you know. So that's a drone position of looking at that and that's also the work I then eventually try to do with clients of my trauma sort of work as well. Do you find it makes your work as sort of a bit more complicated or, you know, a little bit, uh, I hate using the word, but um, it often creeps into our conversation, doesn't it, Mm. that sometimes it's a bit chaotic? Yep. Yep. So how, just from a curious perspective, how do you handle that chaos of oh, and like the unexpected? Oh, you love chaos, yeah. do you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so chaos is one of my favourite things. Do you find then if you expect chaos, you actually deal with it better? 
I do. And there's an interesting, something that's come up in our conversations before, the way that I actually go into these situations is I go in with a mind of what we call not knowing. Uh, I like that one. Yeah, mm. because at the end of the day, I, you know, I, now is different than 12 months ago, but I didn't have a map of these communities and these people and how they'd been affected. So I actually go in looking at it as a clean slate and not mm. knowing and not assuming and really just then try to take that on. But it also then allows me to sit back and when we're thrown with chaos, which tends to be the nature of social work as a whole, um, it actually lets me manage it better because mm. my mind then has the capacity to do so. And I think that's a really good point because it allows you to see the person as the expert, not just of their lives, but of their community. Because mm. each one, what we've noticed, and you'd notice this too, I'm sure, Matt, that um, each community that you've gone into, the trauma, the, they've all had a bushfire experience of one level of another. Mm. Also, COVID, has exper they've experienced that differently, depending on their isolation or where they Huge. are. Um, and we've had road closures, so people have just not been able to have that movement through the communities, which mm. often happens in, you know, these small confined areas. And um, we've got logging issues, so we've got issues that have impacted that. So if we're not sort of able to work fluidly mm. um, or being agile, I, I really think sometimes as social workers we've got to be agile um, and be able to work across, as you said, those multiple areas of people's lives or those domains. Mm. I actually really like that image of the helicopter, or the drone too. I like that because in my mind now I'm thinking I can drone in and sit at a level yeah. and observe and, and have an, a, an effect and then move up another level mm. and then have a, a see what I see from that point and then move across. So I really like that image. It might be one I might use in my practice. Yeah. So are you all right if I clone that one from you? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I, I like that one. And, and I think beautiful. clients would understand that and just say, I just want to step up above this and look down like I'm a drone. What do you mm. think I might see? Yep. And that might be an interesting way of working with people. Do you think? It is. And the... I'm not going to get too much into theory, but it comes into the brain science behind it of what we call metacognition, which is oh. a person's capacity to actually step back from their own thoughts, feelings and mental states mm -hmm. and actually have a sort of observation sort of stance about right. the impact it has on them. Yep. And that's where I try and eventually <clears throat> get people is to have that awareness. And that doesn't mean that you know, we're always going to be this perfect person who's walking through the world. The world doesn't work like that. Mm. But the idea is, is we learn and increase that capacity to do so. Yep. It increases our capacity to manage things like trauma, grief, loss, and all these things that are really, really difficult transitions for us and actually then move fluidly with them and mm. then become part of our life. Mm. That's a really good point. But listen, what I'm picking up listening to you is I'm not hearing you talk about unpacking the trauma. Mm. You're actually looking at the trauma as an event and looking at the impact the trauma had on the person. So actually looking more at the person rather than unpacking the trauma, mm. the the experience of the trauma. You're not really going there, are you? No, not often. I will say there is a certain number of people I work with where we actually do need to go there and that's actually okay because um, some people really do, you know, and I, I'm a big believer in this, need to feel heard and mm. have a story. So talk about what happened on that day, yeah. what happened the next day, what were you frightened of, to actually take them there? Sometimes. Yeah. And, you so know, tell me if what your safe. practice is when you're holding someone in that, uh, that space of we're back there and the images are coming. I'm How do like you manage that? Because bushfires are pretty darn horrifically mm. scary, aren't they? Like what we saw on telly. Horrible. And I remember driving through some of those bushfire regions a couple of weeks afterwards and just the starkness, the blackness mm. really shocked. 
Oh, no, listen, what we must really say here too is that if we're talking about some stuff that triggers thoughts and feelings for people here today, please be mindful of your own experiences. It could be uh, triggering for people, especially those that might have lived through this experience themselves. So we invite you to be really mindful of your own experiences and feelings here today and talk to a colleague. Absolutely, if you feel something come up or you've had something trigger, please talk, reach out to a colleague. Mm. Um, and I think it's just critical. Um, And that's a really good point perhaps we could talk about, Matt. How do you get self-care? What do you do when you're sitting there? Because it's so hard to sit with somebody's grief and trauma and then be able to hear this multiple times in a day and across Mm. a week. Um, And then what do you do when you go home? I go fishing usually. You go fishing. <laughs> so, oh, that's such a, um, I won't say that's a boy thing. Because <laughs> no, I'm sure I, girls go fishing. Girls do it too. Girls do fishing, yeah, yeah. Um, I just can't do fishing. No, not I, for everyone. No, 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 and, no, no, no. You know, so I know some people who do knitting and that's not my thing. No, so no, we all have yep. different forms mm, of self-care. But like yep. one of, two of my big things is I go fishing. So okay. I've always got a rod in the back of my car. Have if, you really? Yep. So yeah. if I've had a heavy day, we might, I might go fly fishing. Uh, and a big one that I really enjoy as well is um, just walking. I Do really, you really? Yeah, right. in nature. Yep. Mm-hmm. So then those are probably my mm. go-tos. Mm. Um, and because I do a lot of work with adolescents as well, I'm pretty you know, a little bit geeky, so I'm into my video games and stuff. So you're I've heard you talk about Pokemons Pokemon. and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've yep. got a couple of those um, ways of de- debriefing and unwinding, haven't you? Yep. yep. So yep, th- that's my self-care. Yeah. How about yours? Yeah, oh, I hang out with the kids. And Beautiful. I can act like a little kid with my grandchildren and I make caterpillars and blow bubbles and I can go on the merry-go-rounds. And, yeah, so I tend to hang out with the kids or in my garden. Gorgeous. And you know what I like about my garden? Stuff happens there and I don't have to make it happen. I just go out there and weeds grow mm. all by themselves. Yeah. I don't get many plants growing. They tend to die. But the weeds do their own thing. And I love the fact that I don't have to do anything about it. No. It's really just a debrief. And then I can go back inside and, you know, or get back into it again and think, mm. yep, I have chosen to download. Yep. I think self-care has to be a choice. Yes. Doesn't it? You say, this I am doing now is my self-care. Yeah. Would you, would you agree with that? I definitely agree there needs to be what I call intentional purpose. Intentional purpose. That's so good. Which is the capacity yep. to kind of go, and I do this on a daily basis, um, where I kind of go, and a big one for me is at 7, 7.30 every night after I'm mm-hmm. away, um, is I usually then actually go for a half an hour walk and there's a lovely little farm area out near me. And if mm. I'm in the bushfire affected regions, I'll actually then do a very similar thing. So I'll mm. go out for a walk near the water or something like that. So I'm quite big on those sort of things myself. Oh, I think that's a really important, what you said before, Matt, and this is where it's just lovely to talk with mm. a colleague around this stuff, the intentional purpose of self-care rather than just read a book or do something and think, oh, that was nice. Mm. Intentionally choose to download and put aside the trauma and say, this is not my trauma, this is not mine, my life is here, this is what I'm doing, this is me, so that we can actually go back there fresh and sit with people in Mm. that space. And I think even the concept of transition affects us as clinicians, doesn't it? Huge. So tell me how that, what word comes up in your mind when I say, you know, how, how has this transitioned you as a clinician? It's transitioned me because I think it, the big thing that I've found is it's really opened my capacity to sit alongside someone during a really, really difficult experience and actually kind of sit there and really be empathic but also feel humble that I'm a part of that experience with them mm. and moving towards that process of um, transitioning into uh, making meaning of their 
you know, what's happened to them and where they're going to be moving forward with that new meaning with what's happened. Mm. And as awful as that can be, having that chance to share with someone, it's it's just there's these key little moments I call in therapy these golden moments that they're just like a golden slither that we just have these amazing little moments that me and the client just sit there and go, wow, that's huge. And mm. especially when they've come so far and been through so much. And do you then sit with that client and then hold that moment, like slow down the session so that you can just let, let's sit with that for a bit? Do you do stuff like that? A lot of that, yeah. Okay. So especially if I see um, <clears throat> changes in a person's mental state um, that has shown that, you know, they've done that out of, out of therapy or they've, um, you know, done it in therapy than in a the, what I actually do, I'm, I, again, I'm similar when I'm working with someone with trauma. I'm like a hawk. I'm always watching mm-hmm. for shifts in emotional state. Um, I'm listening to different language and common themes. And the idea with that is twofold to your question before. When I'm working with trauma, it lets me know when someone's getting what we call over-regulated or hyper-aroused, which yeah. is where they start to move into this really, you know, moving into where their trauma is almost reactivating them. Mm. We have to be quite careful with that. We do, yep. Um, mm. And what it allows me to also do, and the flip side is then when we have these really golden moments, I can actually hone in on them. I get the client to really exemplify that. And I really, really kind of go, that's so amazing you're doing that. I really love, how did you come to that concept? And get them to actually think about how they got to that So they're stage. thinking about thinking, aren't they? You're yeah. actually, yep. So and this is what I really love about your work, Matt, and this is why working with you has been a real joy and a privilege. I really mean that. Thank you. That um, your approach to working with people is gone beyond a medical diagnosis. We're not looking at this is depression, this is trauma, this is grief. Mm. You're actually moving into a real social dimension and looking at a whole person, their whole experience and their community and their family and mm. how it impacts on parts of their life, like their life's narrative. Yeah. Yep. Is that a good summation of what you think your work is? Yeah, it is because, and back just briefly looking at mentalization, it's actually what we call a transdiagnostic model where okay. it doesn't, and that basically means is that it can work across the spectrum with different mental health conditions per se. Mm. But what it also then allows is it allows me to step in and look at um, family dynamics or um, systems in schools where things might be going in a little bit um difficult Mm. and actually then assess what's going on there with that lens as well. Mm. So it actually crosses over into that sort of wider community sort of stuff that we've been doing up there and then aiming to do some work around bringing, you know, people back together or back online as well. And I think that's a good approach when we're looking at (laughs) cumulative or multiple traumas. Mm. Um, Yeah, And and it's interesting too because what's trauma for one person, it might not be trauma for someone else, wouldn't it? There's a real Huge. individual experience of events, isn't it? Mm. Yep. So age, cognitive capacity, um, just the locality of it. G- I heard genetics. this morning about the circles of vulnerability. Mm. So that if those vulnerability circles overlap, <coughs> so if there's proximity, um, social uh, closeness or social relationships as well as chronological development issues, then where they cross over, there's a, an element of vulnerability for people. So you could actually assess mm. um, how um, or how at risk a person might be for, you know, perhaps um, further mental health concerns. Yep. Can I just ask you too, with some of the clients you've seen and you've seen a huge mix of ages, has there been an increase or, um, you know, around suicidality, expressions of hopelessness and 
um, despair for people or an expression of suicide? You know, what's your experience with the relationship between suicide and trauma? It's actually quite significant. Yeah. Um, and sometimes it... Um, with suicide, it can be a really tough one in the sense that it can actually cross into people also not so much having thoughts of wanting to die by suicide but not wanting to exist anymore either. So I think both of them can sometimes come in tandem. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've definitely, especially with COVID, because that social connectivity is, and, you know, with trauma is one of the fundamental healing elements. So when COVID's come in and then ripped people apart and put massive distances to them, it's potentially increased this, you know, and the ideations, which is the thoughts and um, a person has around that and not wanting to be here. So I, I think there's been a big increase in that. Mm. And I'll be really honest, I think we've got a bit of a way to go because yeah. of just this compounding effect that people have had. Yeah, which is really interesting. Um, so just listening to you too, Matt, I just am hearing that maybe our response then to communities around suicide has to be a little bit different as well perhaps and understand the nuances of the reasons or the impacts things are having on people that might make them express a suicidal ideation or mm. a wish no longer to be here because the cumulative traumas are too great. Yeah. But there's also, I was only talking to a colleague too the other day around um, anticipatory trauma. So thinking about the next trauma. Mm. Is this something you're aware of that we've well, been through this trauma you know, they've had uh, drought, bushfires and floods. This is specifically for this region. Mm. And then they're anticipating job losses when the logging stops. They're anticipating maybe the bush. Remember January, February was really tough. We were on standby right through Christmas, New Year, weren't we? Um, Waiting for the potential for a bushfire and people were really on edge. Mm. How did you respond to that? What did you do? The main thing is we were very present in the communities and available if that was there. Um, I think there was at least this summer just gone. It was doused a little bit literally because it was a cool summer by the rain. But even then, a lot of people I was working with still reflected that that anticipation and that anxiety, even if a thunderstorm come through, mm. were you know would that lightning strike start a fire? And... That is very much there, you know, mm. and, the, and then you've got the other side, not just the impact of the trauma, but also the impact of, you know, where I'm at, where, where is my income going to come from the next six months if mm. I lose my job or how am I going to, you know, pay rent? These sort of anticipations then actually make things more difficult because they overwhelm a person's emotional capacity. And that takes what we call the thinking part of the brain, which is the part just above the eyes, offline. Mm. So... The work that, again, we're trying to do is just gently back and forward make sense of this, but teaching people to stay more online. I don't want people necessarily kind of turning around and not having this sort of hypervigilance because the reality is if something had have happened... Yeah, yeah, yeah. you want them to be vigilant, don't yeah, you? Yeah, you, you, you yeah. need to respond. So we don't want to dull people down too much or no. even have this false sense of, oh, you'll be fine, mate, you know, this is mm. okay and have your safety plans. You actually want some vigilance. You little want to, like, I often say to clients too, like anxiety is actually a normal natural state. Mm. Yeah, what would what, what do you think about that? No, I definitely think it is. I think it's a, it's a state of heightened awareness that mm. actually <clears throat> lets us focus and get things done. Um, and it, it operates in quite an automatic, you know, w- yeah, it does. the parasympath- mm. 
sympathetic nervous system. Um, it kind of happens in the background there, so which is the part of the nervous system that really happens outside of awareness. Mm. So we need that, but there's also then that need with that person with that vigilance as well and with trauma work as we move towards the end of it, um, making sense of meaning and moving forward with the experiences they've been through as well. So yep. I think it ties into both the anticipation and being responsive but also then the capacity to move forward with what they've been through and what has happened. So some people use the phrase <laughs> post-traumatic growth. What's your feeling about that? Mixed, Mixed, because it sounds too... (laughs) um, I don't like it. I'll put it out there right now. I really don't like the phrase post-traumatic growth. I just think sometimes it's about... Um, using this, the theme of this um, mental health pre- professional network title of transitions, mm. I think what we're helping people to do is that trauma is a natural event that happens. I mean, there's an yep. unnatural event that happens. Mm. Bad things do happen to good people. Yep. Trauma happens. And we have to help people see that things happen in their life. It's yes. a bit, I was, we were talking before this around their narrative, life narrative interrupted. Mm. And they can actually then transition into a new narrative. Yeah. With the trauma alongside them, yep. making sense of what that trauma has done to them and mm. to their communities, to their families, but also to their capacity to either have the life they had before or a new life mm. that has emerged that may have positives or not so good things, you know, as part of it, you know, losses, other losses. And th- this- Tell me what you do or what you think about that. <laughs> well, I think there's two points that have just come to my mind is yeah. ones that you can get two people who have gone through the exact same trauma and they can respond completely different. Absolutely. And that to me is where trauma is there more on a continuum Mm -hmm. and different people get affected by different ways. So it's a very individual experience that we then have to as um, professionals and be adapted to fit that person Mm. and with what they're going through. So then when it comes to making meaning, well, that depends on what we're making meaning out of. Are we making meaning of a job loss? Are we making meaning of... Um, losing a loved one, Mm. are we making meaning of having to relocate? You know, there's a lot of different meanings we're having to make, but it's just helping that person make that meaning with what they've been through. Mm. But I I think... And allowing them to understand what's happening in their brains. Yes. And how they're making sense of this experience. Big time. Now, an interesting thing that comes up a lot, and I'm pretty sure you'd be aware of it too, Matt, when we're looking developmentally with people, Mm. is that they may experience this trauma here now but in five years' time, so if someone's in their 16, 17, and then when they turn 21, and then when they turn 35, you know, significant periods of, of life developmental changes. Do mm. you find from your clinical experience that people experience the trauma yet again or through a different lens when they're in a different life stage? What's your what's your feeling about like those other transitions that they make with life? I think <clears throat> it, uh, that sort of transitional stuff comes actually down to the individual, mm-hmm. um, but... I will definitely say that people who have been through earlier trauma, especially in the adolescent sort of early year period. Like you're uh, talking 13, 14, 13, 14, yeah. Yep, yep. Um, and even earlier periods and that even mm, when okay. they're quite young, when we haven't got what we it's called pre-verbal memory, which is memory that is encased in the body mm-hmm. and we don't have language for that then later in life when they're going through these developments, then the trauma then can actually play out in different ways and they're more prone to being um, reactivated by different traumas. So it's individual, but at the same time, it kind of puts them in a situation where um, 
they're more susceptible to it. But then flip side of the coin, there's other people I've worked with who've been through really, really horrible trauma and I've just come out the other side and used it as a way to grow and mm. not even needed to do therapy mm. per se on that. Mm. It's so unique. Yeah, yep. And this is why I mm. love this work because mm. you just get a different – it shows you how as people we don't fit into a category. Mm. We really are people and really deserve to be treated as that. And and not a diagnosis or, a, yeah. um, you know, like a label or something just as uh, people – who are experiencing a bit of a hard time or something's happened and mm. and our job is perhaps to be um, conduits or facilitators yep. to, to some sort of knowledge or healing. Yep. So I often say to people I see us as, especially from that social work lens of me being on my mountain, looking across at you and I've got this knowledge mm. and you're looking for some help from me, but we're just two humans travelling on journey yep. and at the moment you need my help and there'd be any other circumstance I might be there asking for your help. Do you see that as part of your practice? Because I think that's a, a humanising and a humbling of our role. You know, yes, we're professionals, yeah, but we're also human too, aren't we? Mm. Mm. So, and so, I'm just trying to understand with that question. What What are you asking me? Just so I can make sense of that in my mind. Well, uh, I just that sense of you know we could be seen as experts in trauma, and we go into the community as the experts. Um, so we've got the knowledge, that expert knowledge, and we're coming in with this is what you do and this is how you do it and this is how communities need to have and mm. we do this recovery, we open up these offices and this is what's needed. Whereas I think we need to go in with, you used that phrase earlier as well, you know, the person's the expert of their life, we go in with not knowing. Yep. So tell me what I need to know about you and your community so that, and this trauma, even though, yes, it's bushfires or COVID, so we have a model and we have a, mm. a program that we might be doing, but it's unique for that person and that community and we might be just a conduit, we might be the facilitator, yep. but it's the person that's the expert of their life and their community, aren't they? 100%. Mm. And they know... They know how they work generally mm. and, you know, sometimes it's our job that there is aspects that maybe have fallen out of touch or they don't know and it's our job just to facilitate them discovering that mm. so then we can try and make sense of what may play out in their mind and how yep. they work and what happens in the community and what, it's what I call making it explicit. Mm. So instead of being implicit and just things going along, actually going, you know, especially looking at interplays within schools and if a dynamic is not working between two students, maybe just even pointing it out, you know, I noticed this sort of pattern going on and it seems a little bit problematic. What do you guys, and we think together about it. Mm, what's happening here? Mm. Yep. How have you found working with other health professionals? Because there's, you know, you would have noticed too in this these particular communities, there've been an influx mm. of support, programs, help, um, and some places don't get anything. So it's really yeah. been a little bit hit and miss, but over the overall, there's been quite a bit of the government's been pretty fantastic, and and mm. even things like this mental health professionals network in providing support through webinars and podcasts and things is really exciting. But working with other professionals, how have you found that? Because there's you know the local health district, the primary health network, funding from a range of sources. I will be very honest. Sometimes it's mixed, but on the mm. most part, it's really positive, especially with fire recovery, because people have you know, and other health professionals have actually wanted to come all come to the table and really do some brilliant work. Um, one of the biggest barriers that we've had to contend with, once again, has been COVID, mm. when it literally that shut has us down. Just, hasn't that just changed mm. how... Well, actually, what I love about what COVID's done is that we had to be agile really, really quickly and get good at remote 
support for communities and communities had to be yep. good. The problem was some of these places are so remote they had no internet access anyway, so that mm. was really, really tricky. But you almost wanted to be on a drone there and drop in, didn't you? Yeah. And, you know, just <laughs> do just that. sit above and yeah, sit above. Yeah, just, distance. Yeah, drop me in. <laughs> <laughs> but um, that, that made us, COVID made us get <clears throat> into groove mm. here remotely really quickly, didn't it? Yeah, mm. and I think in a way it's it's been positive and negative. There is... I still struggle sometimes even with uh, remote learning and sort of sort of remote therapy because I do prefer to sit in the room with a person, but mm. the advantage that it kind of has opened twofold. Number one, I can actually do some really good work with clients who are isolated, but also I can connect with my other professionals and peers yep. so much easier and that's actually mm. kind of become a bit of the norm now. Mm. So we can have more regular meetings and conversations around that and my big thing moving over forward with this sort of stuff is over the next 12, 18 months with professionals is trying to bring more professionals together with systems yeah. and getting systems just working together better. Mm-hmm. What do you mean by systems? What's this? So different organisations, whether it's a school, networking with the local community, then maybe networking with local businesses, even networking them with mental health services and that mental health services networking to supports around them mm. and getting people talking more. Mm. Uh, just. God, that's such a social work approach, isn't yeah. it, Matt? Don't you just love it? That's what I love about this project is both of us being social workers and we're mm. employing mostly social workers to these roles is that we, we're really getting some good networking happening, would you mm. say? Yeah, yeah, I 100% yeah. agree. Mm. And so we want um, hugely with that networking more more integrative networking, mm. which is just people coming together and having productive conversations but actually working together as well because mm. the, the, the evidence shows this as well with trauma recovery the more people are able to work together and get along as best they can, because there's always going to be differences, the better people recover and the more support they have and all these things, you know, so generally things just work a lot easier. So that's where I'm very passionate about that versus people trying to work solo can Mm. be quite problematic for both the worker and the community. Mm. So huge on that. And when we move into, start to move into the, you know, moving forward phase, which is the recovery sort of stuff um, with trauma as well as then the community moving forward, I think that's pivotal because it gives it the capacity to do so in the most productive way. Yeah. Connect. And it means that it's just not one service, one model, one approach, that Mm. it requires, like it takes a village to raise a child. It actually takes a village of services and a mix of professionals to recover from Mm. the things that we've seen, isn't it? Yeah. So it's not just social, it's just not psychology, it's just not doctors, it's just not whatever. It's Mm. everybody working together, isn't it? And trying to get these um, discrete programs areas mm. to find how we've got commonalities as opposed to what brings us together rather than what divides us. And that's both been a challenge for some of these communities because they're so really isolated and things like that, that it actually then makes it difficult that they just don't have access. You mm. know, some services are literally a two-hour drive away, yep. which can be, you know, if you've got a family with four kids and you're mm. working full-time and all that sort of, that's, that's tough. Mm. That's really hard. So... Trying to just support the development of that, I think, is really huge over time to come. Mm. But I agree with you. It also then, doing this sort of approach allows that sort of bringing people together and healing. And Mm. that's pivotal moving forward because trauma at some point isn't always doom and gloom. Actually, what I've really loved about um, the experience over the last or perhaps six months is some of the big events that we've had um, Mm. that have been organised across the Snowy Valley region. 
um, there was an arbour ceremony in that big, beautiful sugar gum forest burnt down and then people went back there and had a, a real a ritual, a ceremony mm. to, to mark this spot. And I often think with trauma, um, with major traumas like this, bushfires and COVID and things, we don't have a mark. We don't have a... Uh, like the, we've got roadside traumas. If there's been an accident, we put up a, a roadside marker. Mm. Uh, if someone's died, we have a grave. And when there's major traumas and there's a bushfire gone through, now we've had COVID, it's changed people's lives. We've all had to make some major changes to how we practice, what mm. we do, and our communities are different. And it's very hard. Yes, the forests are gone. Houses have gone, but they get rebuilt. Sometimes there's a movement on, and for a lot of people it's like this major thing happened, we need some memory. We need mm. a marker to say this bad thing happened in 2021. Yep. And so how do we record that? How do we mark that and celebrate? And I think what these ceremonies have been really remarkable to allow people to come together and say this thing happened here mm. and we're coming together as a community, those that lived through it and the new people coming in, and just remember do yeah. you think? Do you see that as an important part of our work as clinicians to facilitate this and be part of it? Yeah, I think it's huge because um, the reason I think it's quite huge is it, I don't really like the term closure because mm. I don't, in my perspective, and I could be wrong because it doesn't fit for everyone, but we the trauma is always going to be there. We can't just magically blank it from our no, mind. No, that's but right. what we can do is apply that new meaning to it and making that sense of it and giving that capacity to put it where we need to put it mm. to then start moving forward and creating that new narrative and transition mm. in our life to what's next, but with appreciation of what we've been through at the same time and that it was a really difficult experience both individually and for communities mm. as a whole and, and as a nation. Absolutely. Yes, yes. And internationally it was picked up too, wasn't it? Huge. Just huge. But as you were talking, I was just thinking and... Um, it, it, it makes us as healthcare professionals challenge some of our older models of working with people around grief and loss. So, you know, those people that might be still using models that say there's stages and phases to say that, you know, you might go through stage of anger, denial, bargaining and moving on or having closure. Mm. We're really challenging that notion of having defined phases because for each person there will be a different trigger, mm. something different that changes their adaptation. So those dual processing models yep. fit quite well, don't they? Those grief dual processing models fit well with a trauma response. Would that be right? No, I, I, actually, think so? I actually think um, sometimes I actually sit and map this out with people and draw it on paper and that when you put, especially when you get trauma, I, I really don't often find people who have not been through trauma who haven't got some form of grief. Mm. So it's really good in their mind when you map this out to go, these are the triggers and this is, you know, are they more on the sort of instrumental, which is sort of a, a doing sort task of focus sort task of thing, focus yeah. thing, or are they more intuitive, which is more in, emotional and for them to make sense of themselves that way. So I actually think with both trauma, grief and loss, they just meld mm. and it's logical. Yeah. And I often draw that, you know, diagram for people, that dual processing one or the mm. dual tract one, Same. but put trauma over the top like a, a, um, a blanket. This, the, we must work through this trauma first to see the grief and loss. Would that be something you use? Yeah. And I... I, I definitely do use that. Um, very good for adolescents as well, I'll add, um, because it helps them make sense of themselves when they're quite overwhelmed and they're, they're still in that stage where they're learning that skill. 
Um, what I also think it does, though, is when you start to work through that trauma, the grief just naturally starts and the loss starts to come up with it as you do the work. So as it actually it. Mm. lets us kind of move between the two quite gently. And mm. I always work mostly gently. I do mm. challenge my clients quite a bit. But um, I do mostly work gently because you've got to take this stuff, you know, slow and steady because you run the risk of... Um, what I call blowing someone out the water, yeah. which is re-traumatising them again, yeah. and that's just such not good practice. No. no, it's horrific. But Matt, this has just been a remarkable experience. I just love sitting here chatting with you. It's just conversations mm. with Matthew. I think have to be on my agenda for every Friday. This is just really cool. It is really so cool. So thank you so much for the privilege of coming in here today for the Mental Health Professionals Network, and this this theme of transitions and to think of mm. trauma, grief, and loss fitting into this concept of transitions it's it sits well doesn't it it does and i even me thinking now i think that's something that i'll be taking away from this is that word transitions and kind of looking at from that lens on how how people are transitioning and taking that sort of step back and going just observing and what transitions they're going through because it exists in multiple contexts i think what it does for us too matt is it takes the word journey out of our language a little bit yeah i don't like using the word you know this is your journey mm. um but to actually say that this is your transition mm. and this is this transition and you'll have multiple transitions in life so how we do this might inform others yeah i just think it's a beautiful concept to have for this series and also to have in our trauma language i so really do like that mm. actually so i'm going to steal that one off you myself <laughs> But thank you and this so is much it, for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. Let's do it again. Let's yeah. do it again. Thank you. So just a reminder, we're really, really interested in your comments and thoughts and things that you might have taken away from today. While I've been really engaged listening to Matthew, but a lot of you might have taken things from today or comments that you'd like to make. So please, please send us back your feedback and your comments. Follow the link in the show notes and look for the next episode of Transitions. So this is Julianne White. I'm a mental health social worker working in rural New South Wales with my colleague Matthew Povey. And I'm a trauma psychotherapist working in rural and regional New South Wales and also finishing my um, social work degree. Fantastic. Thanks, Matt. Wonderful. Thanks. Visit mhpn.org.au to find out more about our online professional program, including podcasts, webinars, as well as our face-to-face interdisciplinary mental health networks across Australia. 